I just got thrust into it and and I was trying to figure out uh, what was going on. So I, I'd say it was it was a great uh, introduction to the area because I fell in love with the language and the culture. And then I spent the next 20 years through now trying to figure out why is China the way it is, what's happened and and how is China interacting with the rest of the world. Hello and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans and today we're with Jonathan Bench, who's a partner at Harris Bricken uh, Law Firm. He's based in Utah, but he has a lot of experience in working with China and in at one point of his life lived in China for a number of years. And so today we're going to talk about the changing dynamics of doing business in China or doing business with Chinese and what that means for startups and ultimately what that means for VCs that are supporting startups. So uh, a lot has changed. So we're gonna get kind of an update from an insider expert, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. So maybe give us a quick background of your you know, personal business connection to the region um, and, uh, and, and, then, and then what your area of business has been since those days. Great. So I spent about three years in China in the early heydays of China. I, I was a young 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, so in the middle of my undergrad, before I had any real world experience, I was thrust into this into this time, two years in Hong Kong, uh, a year in Sichuan province. And so I was seeing things through very new eyes, uh, you know, kind of understanding the world as it existed then not understanding that China was on the rise, but not really knowing, you know, with a professional business brain like I have now, what I was seeing. I was seeing development, um, you know, and, and China was at various stages of development, depending on where you were, whether you were in a tier one, tier two, tier three city. And so- What city time, were you in? I mean, I love so Hong Kong. What was the mainland China city? You mainland were in? China, it was a, a tier three city named Deyang. Deyang was the third largest city in Sichuan province. So not what's the coastal. biggest city in Sichuan province? Chengdu. Chengdu is the capital. Oh, Chengdu. So, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Oh, so you're way over there. I've been to so Chengdu. Way, that's like that's like the there. Midwest. It is. It's, it's like, like the Midwest. You it's think like of it as like the Midwest where they make automotive, like, like that's been declared the automotive capital. Yeah. Chengdu is a crazy big city. Right. And they pulled, you know, in the mid, I'm going to say early 2000s, they started the plan to pull Chongqing out of Sichuan province. So Chongqing oh, is a I love that. That is my favorite city in all of China. Is it? Chongqing is my favorite. They've got that um, that pepper that if you had a mirror to see yourself, you would think that your face is like shaking like that, mm. when in fact it's not. Yeah, they call that mala. It's called, it's the numbing spice. So it's not, you know, they have five different types of spices in Chinese lingo. And Sichuan is the, you know, the pinnacle of that. So Mala is the name for that. And it, it means it's the numbing spice. Yeah, exactly. Well, Chongqing is just a beautiful city with those mountains that you think like don't exist on earth and floating down those two rivers there. Just a beautiful place. I, if, I, if I were to live in China, that is my favorite place. I mean, you could say Shanghai is just a great town. It's like in New York and Hong Kong is, it's, is, is the coolest. It's like a Paris, but Anyway, if I were on mainland, I would do that. Okay, sorry to interrupt. That's fine. So, so tier three city, it was you know probably a cool 10, 15 million. It, it still felt very rural at the time. Uh, and I was teaching at a technical college, teaching English, learning Mandarin after I'd learned Cantonese in Hong Kong and trying to figure out what I was seeing, you know, understanding the world there. So that was my foray. And I was working with a lot of younger students who are now mid-level managers all over the country. But these were not the, the creme de la creme these were kids from poor rural areas 
uh, didn't even really have an interest in learning English, but they were, uh, you know, we were a novelty. My wife and I were teaching there together. And so we were, we were a novelty. So I had my exposure to China was very unusual because I didn't prepare to go. I just got thrust into it and, and I was trying to figure out uh, what was going on. So I, I'd say it was, it was a great uh, introduction to the area because I fell in love with the language and the culture. And then I spent the next 20 years through now trying to figure out why is China the way it is, what's happened, and and how is China interacting with the rest of the world? Okay. And um, I mean, with my own experience, I pretty much gave up on trying to do anything with China myself in maybe 20, it was during COVID. So it was like 2020. Like I was still talking to China in the very beginning of 2021. And then we just said, you know what? Let's wait five years, possibly even fifteen years. Put it on pause. Yeah, for, for, for us, for us, we were working with Chinese. We never took in any LP capital from China, but we were working on a few things that, by early twenty twenty one, we decided just to hit pause. So we're probably part like a lot of people that said, a lot of people are saying let's wait five years, and then some people said let's wait fifteen years. Um, so I'm really curious to hear from you. I mean, obviously, Microsoft still has 10% of the revenue. Tesla has got one of their four big factories there and doing a lot of successful business. What's What are you doing specifically yourself? Um, I support a lot of SMEs in, in their China work. So do a lot of manufacturing agreements, uh, supporting uh, supporting manufacturing industry there. And on the, on the PE side, in 2022, I did a number of deals uh, where that we're consolidating operations around supply chains. And so uh, companies that specialized in supply chain operation oversight, uh, there was a, a PE firm I was working with in particular that was that was specializing in, in bringing those in and, and owning the supply chain operations, basically, supply chain management, supply chain support, anything like that. And it wasn't just in China. They were reflecting the greater trend of China plus one or China plus wherever. And so we had, uh, I had deals that involved Malaysia, you know, China plus Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, and Mexico. And so the, I saw those deals reflecting the greater trend of China is still important. We need to have operations there. If we have brick and mortar operations, you know, what else can you do um, other than try to diversify the risk a bit? So that's and the, does this mean? Uh, does this mean um, like like what's the nationality of your client? Who, who who are you representing? U.S., U.S., Japanese, um, and European. So these are okay. These so are U.S., Japanese, Western, European companies, Western companies were... with interest in China, some kind of interest in China. Okay, so these guys have manufacturing facilities in China, and now so, they want to secure and kind of vertically integrate to own and operate more supply chain to not. Typically, typically they have partners in China. They don't usually own the real estate or the factories. Although I did work with one company, a, a fairly well-known U.S. manufacturer, that owned a factory in China. But that was because they wanted in litigation. They had a they had a company, a competitor that was uh, infringing. They sued them in China. They won in China, and as part of the settlement, they got the factory. And I was helping them on a on a loan restructuring, actually. Uh, because they wanted to build out more plant in China, but the local government, the local government would not give them more real estate, so they were having to build up rather than out. Oh my goodness, that that's pretty interesting. I mean, I can't imagine being successful 
in a province without the support of the local government in, yeah. you know, like municipal sovereign wealth funds and free economic free trade zones and all that kind of jazz. That's, that's amazing. It's interesting that to see the uh, intellectual property and, you know, adjudication of law uh, evolving in China. I mean, it, it, tell me if you've heard this joke before. Do you know what copyright means in Chinese? No. Right to copy. That's what you know, they just, <laughs> that's, that's my right to copy that, you know. I love it. But the but as you have like the VC by like 2016 there was like too many VCs chasing too few deals. It was like every every fund had like SOE plus local sob fund and all that uh, just going going crazy to overnight catch up to the US. It's actually the only place I've ever seen. Everyone wants the Silicon Valley in their patch of the world, you know, Park City, Utah, whatever. But what's always, it's entrepreneurs are everywhere. It's easy overnight to drop money on people that are dying to be a VC or move to, you know, get out of Silicon Valley, get out of New York. But what it's hard to get is the big balance sheet buyers that create that spiral, that the, you know, Cisco, VMware, Facebook, Amazon, Google, it's Adobe, they're all right in the Silicon Valley. So the buyers are there. And so you get this spiral of like company spins out, gets acquired. The, the, the buyers know about it because, you know, our kids play soccer or lacrosse together, whereas China has it. So they've got, you know, Baidu, Tencent, you know, Huawei. It's a limitless number of big balance sheet buyers, plus everyone else manufactures their VC system overnight. So they really do have a Silicon Valley. And those guys care about the law. They want intellectual property protection. You know, and so copyright, you know, all that stuff is is evolved. That's amazing to hear that a Western company succeeded. Um, Absolutely, and it, that and, and it's and a black course, guy. It's crazy, you know. It's they want the legitimacy. The the interesting thing about companies operating in a communist regime is you have endless creativity because people are always trying to figure out how do I operate within the system and then how do I operate outside the system. And so they, they, I think their neurons are firing twice as fast as ours because we're always trying to think about the right way. Uh, you know, eventualities, and they have to think about how am I going to deal with this if I run into party issues? And how am I going to run into it if I run into issues with my, you know, my, uh, you know, the outside world outside of China. And so I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And and the legitimate players really want to be legitimate. You know, I've, I've seen the, the, co the contracts that are coming from Chinese lawyers are getting better. Um, you know, they're, they understand what they're doing. There's still a lot of sloppy work. There's still a lot of companies in China that don't even bother with lawyers. Uh, but I think overall, there is, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, there's been a real, uh, you know, real growth in the legal system and, and everyone understanding, at least the ones that care, are understanding that the way to get legitimacy outside of China is to play by the rules. And and the ones that, that are in China that don't play by the rules, put a, a black eye on everyone else that are trying to play by the rules. So it's, it is very interesting. It, it's really still qu quite a, you know, quite a crapshoot about the type of lawyers that I'm going to be dealing with on the other side, if I'm even dealing with lawyers on the other side. Whenever I've dealt with lawyers in, you know, Beijing, you know, Nanjing, uh, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, these kinds of places, um, they brag, like beat their chest to like Tarzan about their connections with the government. Like they're like, oh man, I'm in with these guys. Like I, 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 I you know, I did the JB with Tesla. I did the JB with, you know, the maglev guys, like, like they're just talking about their access to government is, is my personal experience. Um, so in, give us a perspective for those that are not as deeply involved as you are 
um, when did things get worse, worse, worse? And what kind of dealings uh, cross-border with mainland China or even Hong Kong started to stop? And then what is continuing to happen now? Like what positive business is is actually happening? I, I kind of get the impression, like speaking to some people, like when Trump was raising tariffs, these guys were like, we don't care. If you want to make your people pay more for their toothbrush, go at it. It's going to be very hard to stop making your toothbrush here. Like, like they, they seem like they just didn't care. Yeah, I think it, it does. There's some truth to that because the Chinese government and, and the manufacturers know that we're still very dependent. The West is still very dependent on China. You know, it's the, it's the world's manufacturing hub. Um, I sensed some nervousness even before COVID, you know, as, as Trump started to uh, roll out the tariffs and, and talk, even, you know, during the election cycle, when it looked like he was going to be elected, people were asking questions and saying, what is this going to change for the marketplace? Are it, is it really going to be harder to do business? Is the U.S. really going to, to decouple? Um, and how much how much leverage are we going to have? Because China, the Chinese government is, has learned to use WTO uh, to its advantage. And so there are... Um, you know, I'd say probably 2017 is when things started getting more complicated. Uh, you know, the Xi Jinping risk, you know, his his the risk where he as head of the Communist Party, you know, Communist Party secretary, when he really started to flex his muscle and we saw, uh, you know, ongoing corruption campaigns and people who we thought were untouchable finally, you know, being being pulled into the system, whether they liked it or not, that started to make people pause. But I think really COVID was probably the exclamation point for many people. You know, when we had shipping costs go up five, six, seven, 10 X, and we had delays and, uh, and we saw how quickly the government could just shut down China as a factory that caused people to think, well, if, you know, if I can pass on cost to my customers, fine, but if I can't get, uh, I can't get people into the country, if my people are, you know, we already had exit bans for uh, potential for uh, any kind of any kind of economic issue, you know, could have resulted in any uh, foreigner getting held in China. So we knew about those risks, but adding these COVID risks on top of it, and then and then everyone's been holding their breath. I mean, even even now, you know, we're we're still dealing with the ramifications of what what did COVID do to China, and we thought there would be more stimulus within the economy in China. Uh, you know, we've seen the property sector fall. And so a lot of people are, are saying, okay, it looks like the Communist Party is really not going to uh, continue printing money. It's not going to bail out all of the industries like they would have done in the early 2000s, in the, in the 2010s, where uh, China's rise was inevitable. I think that everyone is a lot more sanguine now about the realities within China. And so it's hard. Um, I've, I've seen this reflected in the in the lack of, of PE and VC deals Um that have that have come to my desk this year in 2022 but what i have seen is a retooling of relationships with china so i said i worked with smes and this matters because as you said you and i were talking before i think we started recording that the vcs are supporting smes right that's they we see them grow supporting them the ones that have creative ideas i think even if the economies continue to chinese economy continues to crater as we've seen it happen this year there are still going to be opportunities and those opportunities um I've, I've seen this in due diligence, especially. So let's say, you know, the, the PE deals I was working on last year, I'd say I was cleaning up the 
the Wild West heyday of the early early to mid two thousands, right? All of the deals, you know, these uh, the companies have changed hands maybe once or twice uh, between parent. So these are parent companies in the U.S. with uh, with Chinese subsidiaries. And and I was shocked at some of the things I was seeing in, in due diligence. Right, everybody in the early early days, you know, there there's a right way to go into China, there's a wrong way to go into China, and most everyone went in uh, the wrong way, going in with a, a representative office that only had a very limited scope of what it could do there, and then they just exploded operations and never bothered to really uh, to set up as a as a real entity in China. That wasn't a problem then. It's a problem now when you're doing due diligence, and and I'm on the buyer side doing diligence and seeing. Uh, what people have been hiding. So there, that that was a very interesting. 2022 was a very interesting window into that part of the world. And the, and you and I talked about the supply chain consolidation and companies that really understand and have the resources to monitor supply chains as they're in China, as you have personnel in Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam to support those. And so this year, the trend that I've been seeing that's most interesting to me is uh, is companies that have a uh, have a vested interest in China. Maybe they have a, an established joint venture. Maybe they just had a key manufacturing relationship. And because China is hurting so much and and U.S. companies are are hurting as well, um, is, there's been a, a serious reevaluation of the relationships. A lot of clients that I've been working with have decided the China risk is too much. We don't want a joint venture in China anymore. We we need to get out. And I'd say that was happening already in the late late teens. Um, but everyone kind of paused. I felt like took in a deep breath during COVID and in the last year. And now, as we're as we're looming, you know, twenty twenty four is looming. We're looking at cleaning up balance sheets, cleaning up assets. Um, there's been a lot of non compliance. I have a particular client that just can't get decent financial statements from their China JV partner, and because their accounting is not done the same way as ours, which means that the their auditors won't give them a clean bill of health. And so it's become that much of a risk that we have to completely pull out of the JV one way or another. And, and those that takes time. It's not an easy process to unwind a JV in China because the Chinese don't want to let you go. Your Chinese partners don't want to let you go. The government doesn't want to let you out. And so there's no incentive to speed that process along. And so, uh, but, but they don't want to get out of China entirely. They recognize that they have partners in China. They still need those relationships and companies that are selling into China. I have, I have great clients in the U.S., very successful clients that, uh, you know, the China market has stagnated a bit, but they're still very bullish on uh, the ability of the Chinese and the willingness of Chinese to buy good products designed in the West and even manufactured in the West. And so I'm retooling those relationships now for uh, either a, a distributor relationship or a, um, you know, either hopefully an exclusive distributor relationship if it's a good partner, but I've also seen it come the other way where I have Chinese manufacturers that that need to sell product and they want to sign up dedicated distributors, but they're not willing to give country exclusivity. So my my world the last couple of months has been wrestling a lot with Chinese manufacturers with great products, I mean, fantastic products that, that we don't even have in the marketplace in the US, uh, but they aren't willing to give exclusivity to my clients which makes it difficult for my clients to uh, to make great investments in in these products because these are not small widgets. You know, these products are uh, tens of thousands of dollars, right? These are these are fairly unique products, and so there are uh, we're just running into a lot of interesting wrinkles as we we're finding we have to educate the Chinese about the U.S. market. Um, I find that Chinese manufacturers don't really have a desire to build a brand. Uh, they 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 don't see brands the same way we do. 
For them, the brand is just an ancillary part of a great product and they just want to sell product. Whereas in the US, we want to build a brand because we, we understand that when we're turning around and selling that, that intangible value of the brand is significant. It can even be better, more valuable than the products that are being sold. Right, right, right. Are you seeing Chinese um, setting up um, manufacturing facilities in places like Mexico? Um, yes. That like they're preparing, like they're preparing to not get, you know, you know, caught in in the headlights. They're, Absolutely. What are Absolutely. you seeing I, there? I was in Mexico uh, twice last year, and and I asked everyone I talked to, you know, government officials, uh, other lawyers, accountants said, what's happening in China? They said, the Chinese, just like anywhere else, the Chinese are everywhere. They're they're setting up entities, they're buying real estate, they're building factories. And the interesting thing about, about the difference in Mexico, they have the maquillador manufacturing method, which is we'll give you the land, we'll give you a vanilla box, you bring everything else. You bring you bring the PPE and you and you train the people. China's the China model that Mexico hasn't figured out how to crack yet, but they they know they need to crack it is we are your sourcing agent. We'll do everything for you. And so U.S. companies haven't made a wholesale switch to Mexico yet because uh, a lot of a lot of U.S. companies are, are just buying product and turning around and selling it in the U.S. They're not really engaging too much. They may have a little bit of uh, input on on product changes, but they don't own the PPE. They don't own the factory. They're not the ones with the in-house knowledge. And so the Chinese are going to be bringing that to Latin America, particularly to Mexico, because of the USMCA and the advantages uh, that we have uh, in doing trade with Mexico because of, of that new NAFTA 2.0 Act. Uh, it, it is definitely happening. There are there are a lot of Chinese there, and and the Mexicans are running into the same issues with the Chinese that you get dealing with Chinese all over the world. It's a different way of doing business. You have language barriers, um, and you have uh, just a different way of a uh, different way of doing business. But I think if if the Chinese, if the if the Mexicans business community can crack it faster than the Chinese can get in and get set up, then it will be a great opportunity for Mexican companies that really are interested in setting up sourcing agent models rather than dealing with the uh, relying on the maquilador model. When Chinese when Chinese set up a manufacturing facility in Mexico, don't they bring their own people? They will bring their own people. Absolutely. Right. So, so it's not necessarily like you know, all jobs for Mexicans at some point there are, but uh, my understanding was that it's like, it's China operating from Mexico. Right. Um, and what about the expression of um, a signed contract is just a step in a path to an ongoing discussion? Yeah. But like, yeah. is that, you know, have we seen, have we seen them just adopt more of a Western view of, you know, we signed a contract, don't try and move all the economics to, to the Chinese side after having shared economics in a written agreement. Is that changing? It's not changing. I see the same thing. That, that is not the, changing. The written contract is the stepping stone to the final relationship, right? That right. You, you said it exactly right. It's, it's the it's stepping stone. Step. That's what people say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I haven't, it's a little confusing. It's, it's frustrating. I found it frustrating. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I mean, I almost uh, feel lucky that it didn't go through. I mean, we had an agreement for, a large fund to create JVs. So we fund Uber, we're going to create Uber China. So there would be no DD and then Uber owns half. And then um, they said, uh, small detail, that whole management fee and carry, it's all ours. And I said, you know, and why would I do this? And they, they were saying for the prestige or something like that. And, and, and so that was the, 
I, I wasn't willing to go to, through any further stepping stones, you know, myself, but you know, it's a wonderful place. Uh, I, I think the next time I go to China, it'll be with my family as a tourist, but, um, it's exciting to hear what deals are happening now. And, uh, you know, maybe I'd love to hear some more stories from you. Have you come back and talk about what's getting done in 2023? Um, it's sure. difficult for a full decoupling and the politicians will do what they do and business people at some point you carry on. And the Chinese are not only in China, as we discussed with Mexico, it's, it's an, it's an everywhere presence. Uh, and, and I'll tell you about at that when we talk next, I could probably speak more publicly about a client that a Chinese client I'm working with is doing some very interesting things. I, I consider quite innovative uh, in the, in the trade it's trading cards and uh, other collectible assets uh okay. and they've, they've just been operating in china and now they're coming to the u.s they uh, I, I sent them a proposal just a week ago to help them do a significant amount of legal work and they're they're taking it very seriously they're going to be bringing people here they're going to they want to do it the right way and it's actually quite refreshing to be working with a chinese company that has a good model um has a budget and understands uh you know i think understands really how to build a brand so i think this is probably chinese you know chinese companies 2.0 is really understanding the importance of of building brands as they ex expand out of china interesting well jonathan thanks so much and uh let's chat in a few months and uh give ourselves a little more time for the next one perfect thanks great. so much thanks Andy. okay talk to you soon bye, bye for yeah. now